Hey, it's Andy from Talking to Teens. It would mean the world to us if you could leave us a five-star review. Reviews on Apple and Spotify help other parents find the show, and that helps us keep the lights on. Thanks for being a listener, and here's the show. You're listening to Talking to Teens, where we speak with leading experts from a variety of disciplines about the art and science of parenting teenagers. I'm your host, Andy Earle. We're here today with Dr. Anna Lemke talking about her book, Dopamine Nation, Finding Balance in the Age of Indulgence. Anna is the medical director of Stanford Addiction Medicine. She's published more than a hundred peer-reviewed papers, book chapters, and commentaries in prestigious outlets such as the New England Journal of Medicine and JAMA. Anna is an expert in the science of addiction and pleasure. It turns out that we can't understand how pleasure works in the brain without also taking a deep dive into pain because the two are intimately linked and rely on the same neural circuits. If we want to look at what's driving our teenagers' compulsive behaviors, we are going to have to understand dopamine and how dopamine works in the brain. We're going to talk about the pleasure seesaw. We're going to talk about honesty and lying and how those are also related to dopamine and the pleasure system. And we're going to take a close look at shame. By the end of this interview, we will have a much better understanding about what's driving our teenagers' addictions and compulsive behaviors, and we'll see how to talk with them about that, and we might just gain some insight into our own behaviors too. Really, really excited to get into these topics and talk about all that and a whole lot more. Anna, thank you so much for coming on the show today. I just finished reading your book here, Dopamine Nation, and you have a lot of stories in here about different kinds of addictions and uh, kind of compulsive behaviors and uh, a lot of research around that. How did you get so interested in this topic and what inspired you to turn it into a book? Well, I'm a psychiatrist. I've been practicing psychiatry for going on 25 years. And in the early, the first decade of the 2000s, I started to specialize in addiction problems. And I started seeing more and more people coming in with addiction, not just to drugs, but also to various behaviors, what we sometimes call process addictions, things like pornography, shopping, gambling, and then more recently, tech addictions, social media, video Mm. games, and other activities on the smartphone. So I wrote my book as a way to sort of communicate um, the basic neuroscience of addiction, what's happening in our brains, as well as to provide a roadmap for how the rest of us can navigate a world in which we've really all become vulnerable to the problem of addiction because of the almost infinite and overwhelming supply of feel-good drugs and behaviors. You write that prescriptions for 
um, sedative medications uh, are on the rise. Between 1996 and 2013 in the United States, the number of adults who filled a benzodiazepine prescription increased by 67%. What's going on with that? Well, um, as I write about in this book, as well as my prior book, we do have a problem, I believe, of overprescribing psychotropic medications and opioids in this country without fully appreciating the risks. So, and benzodiazepines, things like Xanax, Valium, Ativan are just one example. Okay. They're prescribed for minor conditions. Um, they're prescribed lo- long-term, even though there's no evidence to support their use, no reliable evidence to support their long-term use. Yeah. And what happens is, although in the short term, they can solve a problem like anxiety or insomnia, over the long term, they tend to stop working. People develop tolerance. They need right. effect. And then it can be very difficult to get off of them because people have become physiologically dependent. And in some cases, people can become addicted. So there's an under-recognition of the risks of these drugs and an overemphasis on potential benefits that really are not long-term benefits. You say there's a similar thing with antidepressant use. Rose 46% in Germany in just four years. It seems to be on the rise as well in China, Spain, Portugal, all over the world. Yeah. So one of the fascinating things about, you know, the rise in antidepressant prescribing is that in all of these countries where antidepressants have become more available, rates of depression and anxiety have actually increased. Right. So it doesn't seem to be working at least, you know, a national scale. I will say that I'm grateful to have these tools. And of course, you know, in certain individuals, they have been beneficial and in some cases, even life-saving. So it would not be my message that, that these uh, kinds of medications have no utility. In fact, I believe they have, you have utility yeah. uh, with the right patients at the right time, especially when used at low doses and short term. But I do think, again, we're using them at very high doses for very long periods of time and for very subtle indications um, without appreciating the potential risks. Well, because this is something that I found so interesting is you talk about how, uh, yeah, the number of cases of depression worldwide increased 50% between 1990 and 2017, but even physical pain too is increasing. And you have some data in here that the numbers and types of unexplained physical pain syndromes have grown so we're taking more antidepressants and more painkillers than ever before, but yet um, we still have more pain and more depression. Um, how's, how's that possible? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. I mean, I think it, the, the, the implication is number one, that the interventions that we're using are not really working. Yeah. Um, that's the obvious first implication. And then the other question that it begs is why are we seeing increased rates of uh, depression, anxiety, physical pain? Um, and one of the major hypotheses, you know, in dopamine nation is that actually that we're getting too much dopamine, that mm. all of these reinforcing feel good drugs and behaviors in our hyper convenient world Um, are in fact making us more depressed and anxious. And I talk about the neuroscience of pleasure and pain and why that is. 
Yayu say that it's in essence seems to work kind of like a seesaw. Yeah. Well, I mean, pleasure and pain are co-located in the brain. The same parts of the brain that process pleasure also process pain and they work like opposite sides of a balance. When we do something that's pleasurable, our balance tips one way, we release dopamine, the pleasure or reward neurotransmitter in a part of our brain called the reward pathway. But no sooner has that happened than the brain adapts to that pleasurable feeling by counterbalancing to the opposite side or the pain side. And that's the come down. That's the dopamine levels being um, decreased, not just to baseline level, but below baseline level before homeostasis is restored. So the point is that the way that the brain restores a level balance or homeostasis or baseline dopamine levels is to tilt it first to the side of pain to put us in a dopamine deficit state before going back to baseline. And there are very significant implications of that. It means that for every pleasure, there's a price and that price is a pain. And it may be subtle and barely, you know, um, outside of awareness for mild pleasures. For significant pleasures, like getting intoxicated, there's the hangover, you know, a much more obvious come down, but really for every pleasure, we're likely paying a small price. And that the cumulative pleasures over days to weeks is that we ultimately end up with our balance kind of stuck on the pain side. I imagine that as these neuroadaptation gremlins kind of camping out on the pain side of the balance. Weighing it down. Yeah, we can actually over time reset our hedonic set point um, and, and kind of get, get our pleasure pain balance stuck on the pain side if we're constantly bombarding the pleasure side with these feel-good drugs and behaviors. And the implication of that is that then we need to continue to use our drug, not to get high, but just to feel normal. Mm -hmm. And when we're not constantly distracting ourselves with these feel-good drugs and behaviors, we are experiencing the universal symptoms of withdrawal from any addictive substance, which are anxiety, irritability, insomnia, depression, and intrusive thoughts of wanting to use, otherwise known as craving. So yeah. the antidote or treatment for that condition is to abstain from feel-good substances and behaviors for long enough for those gremlins to hop off and for our bodies to start to upregulate our own endogenous production of feel-good hormones and neurotransmitters like dopamine, like serotonin, like our endo-opioid system and our endocannabinoid system. Yeah, so uh, I love this visual and I think it's really helpful to picture this way. It's like the more um, we try to uh, pound down that um, pleasure side and um, uh, uh, put more weight on there, um, the more our body naturally counterbalances by putting more weight on the pain side over there so that we have to do more and more to just keep the pleasure side from going totally in the other direction. Yes. You have a great line in here talking about how, well, human beings, the ultimate pleasure seekers have responded too well to the challenge of pursuing pleasure and avoiding pain. As a result, we've transformed the world from a place of scarcity to a place of overwhelming abundance. We are cacti in the rainforest. So in some ways, we almost have too much of an abundance of activities that uh, stack up on the pleasure side, which then sort of gets our whole seesaw out of whack a little bit. Yeah, exactly. That, you know, our 
primitive wiring is mismatched for our modern ecosystem. Yeah. And that this, this, the reason that we have a balance that works like this, where we have to tilt to pain before going back to level is because in a world of scarcity, that's, that's a great system that, that keeps us relentlessly looking for something more, never satisfied with what we have, but it's a, it's a system that is not well suited to this world of kind of easy access over abundance. Mm. So then the question really becomes, okay, how do we, how do we live in the modern world? You know, if our brains were designed for scarcity and we live in a world of overabundance, what, what can we do about that? Yeah. And, and I really hold up again, people with, uh, in recovery from severe addictions as models for how to navigate this uh, dopamine overloaded world. Yeah. So one kind of, um, interesting caveat with all of this is that it's difficult to see the extents of the consequences of a lot of these addictive behaviors while we're still using them. Um, high dopamine substances and behaviors, you write, cloud our ability to accurately assess cause and effect. So well, why is that? Yeah, it's a great question. It, I, it's not well understood why it is, but it's okay. very clear that when we're chasing dopamine, we um, struggle to see the true impact of its pursuit on, yeah. our, on, our, on our health and our lives and our behavior, which is why one of the main recommendations I make is to abstain from our drug of choice for long enough for the brain to readapt to the absence of that drug, for those gremlins to hop off the pain side of the balance, for a level balance to be restored. And the purpose of that is because in restoring a level balance, we feel better. We're more able to get joy out of more modest natural rewards, but also importantly, we get more clarity. We're mm -hmm. able to look back and see the true impact of our drug-seeking behavior on our lives in a way that we really don't have access to when we're in it. And anybody who's struggled with addiction will tell you that, that like there are all kinds of ways in which the brain will rationalize our uh, physiology. Yeah, yeah right? We were very good storytellers and the stories um, really are instantly created instantly mm -hmm. to explain why it is that I'm reaching for this substance, even though I didn't plan to, even though I said I wouldn't today, um, there I am. And, and the stories are elaborate and they're well-formed and they're convincing. And our brains do that um, as well as um, all kinds of stories as to why you know, the negative impacts are not that bad. Yeah, it's not that big a deal. And the positive effects are, are, you know, much better than they actually are. A lot of these um, behaviors really have, and especially when we're young, you know, talking about teenagers, and you write that um, your teenage, your teenage patients. Um, this is a, this is a thing because um, in AA, they say I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired, but you write my teenage patients by contrast are neither sick nor tired. And so it's like, Hey, here I am. I feel great physically. Like I'm in the, I'm in my prime. I can eat donuts and, and no big deal. I can uh, smoke pot and I don't really see the consequences of that. And you know, a lot of people look back and say, wow, I don't know how I drank as much as I drank in college because now, now when I try to do that, I feel terrible. But, you know, um, when we're young, sort of, it, it's even harder to see those consequences just because we're so 
yeah, young and healthy. And um, so I think. Yeah. And, that, and yet the consequences are, are really, they're there even when we're young and often I'll have patients come in, okay. in middle age or their late twenties, even not middle age yet, but late later. And, yeah. you know, have a lot of regret about their teenage years um, because now they can look back and see the impact. So the trick is how do we get teenagers who are having those impacts in real time, get them yeah. to see it. Yeah, I mean, that's that's really a challenge. But again, one of the ways to do it is to have them abstain for long enough to be able to gather data themselves and say, oh, wow, I actually, you know, a month after not smoking pot, I'm, I am feeling much better. And I don't want to go back to smoking the way that I was smoking before. I'd like to preserve, you know, my autonomous choice to smoke or not smoke. I'd like to preserve this good feeling in my lungs. I'd like to preserve the fact that I've been much more productive uh, in this month that I haven't been using. So those are, that's the trick because, you know, I could try all day to persuade my patient, (laughs) but uh, you know, it's not until they've gathered the data for themselves and done the experiment that they're really persuaded. So all I have to do then is persuade them to take the 30 day trial of absence. That's hard enough. Oh, easy. Yeah. Yeah, (laughs) But, um, but once they're willing to do that and then able to do that, it can be revelatory for people. Yeah. And you have a great story in here about a teenage girl who is smoking a lot of pot and um, is having kind of like social anxiety, I think, and really um, feeling like the pot is necessary for the anxiety. And once she takes the 30 days of not smoking, she starts to realize how actually a lot of that was being caused by um, like withdrawal symptoms from not smoking and needing to smoke. And that, uh, once she, you know, reset her dopamine system a little bit, that those feelings went away. Um, but yeah, you, you never really have been able to convince her of that if she, um, cause she was really convinced that not having anxiety, this helps me. Yeah. And I've seen that so many times in countless patients over the years, you know, patients who are just absolutely convinced that their drug of choice is the only thing that alleviates their anxiety, their sleep Uh problems, their depression. And when they do that abstinence trial, they can see for the first time that the drug actually drives and creates the anxiety, the depression, the insomnia in a way that's very difficult to perceive in the moment, because when we use it in the moment, it's relieving withdrawal. It's temporarily writing the balance. We feel better. And so totally. it's hard to imagine that it's the thing that's making us feel bad in the first place. Right. Does not compute. Yeah, right. So then, so how how do you go about trying to introduce the possibility of taking some time off and working towards one of these 30-day abstinence periods? Well, a couple ways. If patients are presenting you know, with a chief complaint, something they want help with, like anxiety, or depression, or insomnia, what I will say to them is you know, doing this 30-day fast from your drug of choice may in and of itself be enough to cure your psychiatric problem, in which case we don't need to prescribe medicines or do much of anything else. Of course, they're quite disbelieving that this is the case. Oh yeah, sure enough. (laughs) But but I say to them, I've 
I just really um, lean on the neuroscience and I explain to them the pleasure pain balance and how it works. And that usually makes sense to people um, as well as just, you know, leaning on my clinical experience. Like I've done this experiment with countless patients and the vast majority feel better um, after a month of absence. So that's, that's one, one way to do it. The other way is to really try to get them, especially young, young people to look at the long arc of their life, you know, and suggest to them as I did in the case of Delilah in the book, saying, well, do you want to be smoking like this 10 years from now? Nah, I'm not going to be smoking like this then. How about five years from now? Nah, how about a year from now? And eventually bring it back to, well, if you don't want to be smoking like this a year from now, why not try quitting right now? You know, why, why wait to do that experiment? Some, right. And that can be really helpful because one thing that most people are sensitive to, but especially young people, is their future trajectory. And everybody has their hopes and dreams of what they want to accomplish There is this appreciation of I'm young and my life is still full of possibility. So to kind of try to use that, you know, leverage that like, okay, you are still young. So at which point, you know, are doors going to close for you? You know, you kind of think you're getting a free pass now because you're 18, but okay. So are you going to still be doing this when you're, you know, when you're 45, oh, no way, 30, 25. I mean, how far, how far right. in the future are you willing to look, you know, continue this kind of behavior, or this state of living? And then that kind of wakes them up a little bit. Yeah, 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 yeah. I like that. That's really smart. And because you write about delay discounting and how, um, yeah, we tend to just kind of put off uh, things. It's going to happen in the future. And it doesn't have as much impact as, um, yeah. So yeah. kind of yeah. just shrinking the timeline down. Like That's that right. And really it, yep. and having people actually focus on the future, because as you, you say, delayed discounting is this phenomenon where we're all more likely, whether addicted or not, to overvalue immediate or short-term rewards, oh, yeah. over, reward, over rewards that we have to wait for. The right. vast majority of us would rather get a candy bar today than to get a candy bar a month from now. Oh yeah. But but interestingly, if you look at people who are you know doing things like smoking cigarettes or using other drugs, they are much more likely to overvalue short-term mm-hmm. rewards and much more likely to discount or undervalue delayed rewards because there is some phenomenon that happens when we're using uh, feel-good drugs and behaviors, you know, in an addictive way that we really begin to not pay attention to the future. And we become very narrowly focused um, on sort of what we can get right now today to change the way we feel. And so kind of opening that up a little bit and having people more expansively think about their themselves in the world over longer periods of time, you know, knocking on that door can get people to kind of shift their perspective. And sometimes that shift in perspective is just enough to get them to agree to, you know, the, the abstinence trial. Also then what about um, even just kind of talking about this stuff at all? Sometimes it's really hard as a parent to even get your kid to feel like they can tell you about their behavior or, you know, they feel embarrassed about it or don't want to be open or honest. You write about shame in here and sure that there's a lot of that going on. Even to get to the point where you could suggest an abstinence trial, there's like some groundwork that you have to lay in terms of sort of just 
gathering information or um, getting them to open up and um, talk about what's going on and what they're doing. Is there anything that we could think about as parents to, to facilitate that or make that easier? Yeah, I mean, I think one thing is, of course, as parents, you know, we're, we love our children and we're worried about them, right? When we see them, um, you know, doing behaviors that we can see are not good for them, but perhaps they don't see it. And so we bring our own motion dysregulation and a sense of urgency to those conversations. And that inevitably, you know, kind of poisons the interaction. Mm -hmm. So what I recommend is that we we really focus on um, having these conversations at a time and place when we're not dysregulated and when we are able to um, kind of mitigate the sense of urgency that we have around it so that we're in a calmer space that's more receptive um, to our child being able to openly share. Um, it's very hard to do, but if you can do it by scheduling the time to have the conversation, so you can say to your child, I'd really like to have a conversation with you. Um, I'd like to schedule a time when we're both relaxed. Could we do that at 2 p.m. on a Saturday? You know, kind of a time where you know that maybe you're going to be in a good headspace and when they are potentially going to be in a good headspace and have time. Yeah. And then you can sit down and just kind of share what you observe and what your concerns are. What I always say to parents is you don't have to come to the conversation with the solutions. Like you don't have to have figured it out. Okay. It's just really coming to the conversation with like, this is what I see and this is why it concerns me all bracketed by, and I love you. And that's why I want to have this conversation because I love you and I care about you. Right. In terms of treatment providers, you know, I do use this dopamine acronym um, as a kind of frame for how to talk to patients about substance use problems. Yeah. And the D stands for data. That's where we ask you know, folks, just what are you doing? What are you using? How much? How often? The O stands for objectives. Why do you use? You know, for every person who uses a substance or behavior to change the way they feel, they have a good reason. Yeah. It's either to have fun or to solve a problem. And those problems can be, you know, infinite problems from boredom to insomnia, depression, anxiety, concentration, whatever it is. And then the P of the dopamine acronym stands for problems related to use. So that's where we delve into, well, do you see any downsides from using? Is it interfering? Is it maybe not working anymore? That's a common downside. It used to do X for me. Now it doesn't do that anymore because of tolerance in the gremlins. And then the A of dopamine stands for abstinence. And that's where we then ask them to engage in this experiment. It's really an experiment based on a hypothesis that has to do with the reward pathways and the dopamine balance, uh, you know, an abstinence trial of 30 days to see what comes out of it. Hey, we're here with Anna Lemke talking about the science of compulsive behaviors in the teenage brain. And we're not done yet. Here's a look at what's coming up in the second half of the show. I mean, I do think boredom and inactivity and lack of meaning and purpose that comes from that is a major driver of increased addiction problems. I agree with you. And I'm probably guilty of that as a parent myself. I've got <laughs> kids who are running around doing a million things and yet don't know how, in a way how to do nothing. If we make the behavior so shameful for people without a path for amends that if they were to tell us that they would essentially get expelled 
from, from the community for having admitted the truth about their behavior. That's destructive shame because that will then cause that person to isolate more and engage in their shameful behavior more. When I talk about my daughter, Mary, she started piano lessons and it turned out she had no rhythm and was tone deaf, um, you know, which was a surprise because I come from a, quite a musical family and uh, we, she and I kind of struggled through for about a year and, you know, it was hard for her and it was hard for me. And I think the teacher was the only one who had patience for any of it. But at some point, my daughter just said to me, as we were watching Mumble and Mumbles, this penguin, you know, who um, is not musical and has no rhythm and uh, it doesn't have a heart song. And she's watching that. She turns to me and she goes, mom, am I like mumble? And I just had this moment of like panic. Like, what do I say? Uh, you know, do I, do I like say, no, dear, no, you're, you know, you're doing great with the piano or do I just tell her the truth? And I just decided, you know, yeah, you, you, you're <laughs> kind of like mumble. <laughs> and really, really interesting. Her reaction. She got this great big smile on her face because mm. it was, a validation of what she knew to she be knew. true. Yeah. Right. And there's something very, very comforting when we can recognize the trueness of something, uh, right? Yeah. And that and that our experience is validated in that moment. We no longer have to pretend to be one thing or another. Yeah. We can all just kind of say, yep, this is what it is. And it's not, it's not what we would have hoped for, but it is, you know, the reality. And I think there's, that's very, very powerful for children. And yet we've gotten away from that as parents. We're so worried about, you know, their self-esteem that we're telling them falsehoods. What we need to do is give them true feedback about their strengths and weaknesses to prepare them for, you know, the real world where obviously their strengths will play out and so will their weaknesses. Want to hear the full interview? Sign up for a subscription today. You get access to all the interviews I've conducted, as well as new episodes weeks before the general public. It's completely affordable, and your subscription helps support the work we do here at Talking to Teens. Thanks for listening.